Welcome to Midas Touch Legal AF. If it is Saturday, it is Legal AF Live. If it's Sunday, it is Legal AF. Ben Micellis, joined by Michael Popak. The Popokian breaking down complex legal issues that impact our democracy every single week in digestible ways you could understand, you could use to fight back against the fascist threat facing our democracy. Michael Popak. How are you today? Good evening. I'm glad I'm here with you and I'm glad I'm here with you live. And people are going to know it's live because there's going to be a, a dog interruption at some point by either your dog or my dog. <laughs> but we're ready. You and I are ready. We are ready, Popak. And my dogs, for those who don't know, I have a Maltese named Taquito. I have a toy poodle named Chakito and their mother Sochi is away in Seattle for the weekend. So it's just me and the boy dogs that we've got here and they're missing their mom. So if we hear them in the background, apologies in advance. I'm giving them a little bit of a dirty look as I'm recording this to make sure they don't bark while we're a little stink guy. guy. Popak, what kind of dog do you have? Oh, I got a dog named Gabby and Gabby is, I don't know, some sort of chow or sharpay labrador mix she's a rescue i've had her for 13 years and she's she's listened to a lot of legal discussion in my life she should be a graduate of legal af she's listened to more conference calls than i care to I care to tell you over the last 13 years of her life but we're here i'm surprised popak knowing you your popakian habits that you didn't do like a dog version of a 23 and me truly isolate your dog's DNA to really analyze what specific uh, breed the dog is. You didn't consider doing that, Popak. No, because you know why? Because I've had so many friends of mine do the human version of that and be terribly disappointed because their own personal mythology about their ethnicity is one thing their entire life. Like I'm Italian. And then they find out they they're nothing Italian. And that has completely blown their mind. And I'm like, you know what? I don't need to find that out. I like the myth of that Gabby is some sort of Asian breed of indeterminate mix. I'm happy with that. I don't need to find out whether I am really what I thought I've been all my life or not. I'm cool. Popak, we're getting very philosophical. We're getting very deep. We're learning a lot about you, Popak. But what our listeners, what our viewers want to learn about Popak is not your views about your dog's breed. Popak, that's not what they want to hear about. They want to hear about what is going on in the law this week. And we have a week of many important pressing updates, updates, updates. We usually have a section on the podcast that's based on updates, but there's been so many updates, Popak, based on, and it's a drinking game. Every time I say Popak, everyone in the chat room has a drink, apparently. Oh, all the listeners, yeah, that's a problematic, <laughs> that's a problematic game right there. Um, but so many updates that I think we need to just focus on what is going on with the January 6th commission? What is going on with the horrible, horrific Texas uh, SB8 law, the status of that at the district court level, at the appeals court level? What happened recently at the Fifth Circuit? Let's start, Popak, though, by talking about updates from the Supreme Court. There was a process called relisting 
Um, maybe you can talk to what that process is, Popak, where yeah. there is a relisting of cases. There's the long conference that took place at the end of September where Supreme Court justices meet. They decide on the cases where they're going to grant cert, meaning that these are cases that will come before it during its term. The Supreme Court's term just started, but there was this relisting process where additional cases are now being considered for cert. So what's that relisting process, um, Popak? And then let's talk about some of the cases that may be considered, yeah. not definitely being, but may be considered this term. Yeah, listen, there's a good reason where, where why updates, updates, updates for you and I started out as a little bit of a joke and a jingle and why it, it's no longer updates. It's because you and I have a body of work with our listeners and followers that now is 27 episodes. And we've been very mindful of providing going back now five and six months the beginnings of observations about cases and then following them through to show the wheels of justice. And so, yes, some some episodes like this one are going to be a lot of what we used to call updates, but it's really just you and I following developments in cases that are important to those that follow us. So let's start with, uh, you know, getting in what we like to do, the molecular level, giving our followers information that they normally wouldn't get anywhere else about the Supreme Court process. And in this one, there's a term you used called relisting, which is really a relatively new. I mean, given the fact that the Supreme Court is a couple of hundred years old or more, the fact that they just started using a relisting conference process in 2017 or so is sort of remarkable. It was an attempt by Roberts to kind of get control of the agenda and to give sitting justices the ability to try to advocate for cases that they wanted to have before them on the Supreme Court docket. To remind our followers and listeners, it takes four votes of the nine justices to put a case on the docket for the year, four out of nine, and that's called granting certiorari or granting cert. And so there's a process by which potential cases are discussed and vetted at conference to decide whether there's going to have a they're going to be able to count to four and get to four votes for cert. And sometimes when you're on the losing end of some case or some uh, uh, putting a petition on the full docket, like a Justice Thomas or a Justice Gorsuch, you try again. You try to advocate for the addition of that case onto the docket because you want to address the underlying policy uh, policy merits of that particular case. So in a recent uh, long conference, the justices sat around with their clerks to talk about cases that had sort of fallen off the docket or the list in previous, uh, let's say, last year. And the question is whether they're going to be added or relisted for discussion and ultimate vote for this year. You and I talked offline before we started about, well, how many cases in general is the Supreme Court uh, taking this year? And we've talked about that last pod at about uh, 70 or 80 total cases for the year on average. And then how many have they already filled? In other words, how many how many punches on the dance card have already happened? And I think that's around 20 or 30. So there's there's room to add cases as the October through April term continues. And many of the cases that get added come off the relist. So what's on the current relist is really important because when you're reading the tea leaves and Supreme Court watchers read the tea leaves about, I wonder what cases could end up this term being on the docket. A good place to start is the relist. So I think there's some cases on the relist that you found interesting, Ben. Yeah, you know, you have a lot of cases that are trying to 
undermine the rights of the LGBTQ plus community. You, you know, you have a lot of cases that are trying to undermine uh, the right of women and childbearing persons um, for their right to choose and their constitutional rights um, to an abortion and their constitutional rights um, generally. Um, there's a lot of anti-union cases that are being reconsidered on this list. And there's a case on punitive damages that I want to discuss as well in a little bit more detail. Um, but one case, for example, that's on this relist, Roman Catholic Diocese of Albany versus Lacewell, is whether New York's regulation that mandates employer health insurance plans cover abortions, which burdens a subset of religious organizations by forcing them to cover abortions is neutral and generally applicable under a case called Employment Division versus Smith and Church of Lukimi Babalu versus the city of Hilali, um, and whether New York's mandate interferes with the autonomy of religious entities in violation of the religion clauses of the First Amendment. And again, Popak, you talked about this on the last podcast the framing of that language kind of tells you what the outcome is going to be and where the agendas are of people who are trying to push cases like that. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, it, exactly. And and a little bit of a, uh, again, agenda setting. That case you just talked about, Roman Catholic Diocese versus Albany, New York, uh, of Albany, New York versus uh, uh, Lacewell, that is going to be combined in discussion with another case involving a Catholic organization called Dignity Health, one of the most ironically named entities I can think of for Supreme Court case, Dignity Health versus uh, Minton, in which a Catholic hospital has refused to perform a hysterectomy on a transgender patient. So those are gonna be combined together in a discussion as to whether the underlying issues Catholics being able to discriminate against transgender and other um, and women about their their right to choose. They're going to combine those together. The fact that the Supreme Court is even considering locking those things together to have religious freedom, in their view, and and sexual rights, sexual um, uh, uh, the right to have you know the sexuality of your choice and to control your own body together in one already is sort of heavy uh, with ominous overtones of where this court, heavily Catholic, now with uh, Amy Coney Barrett, could take that type of decision if they can count to four and get four votes for certiorari. Absolutely. And the right to your bodily autonomy, the right to, to be who you are is what's going to be on this Supreme Court's docket um, and in Supreme Court dockets in this term and current and future terms as well. You have this Arlene's Flower Inc. versus Washington mm -hmm. case. Seems like this case, uh, the Supreme Court is obsessed <laughs> with are. this case. In this case, for those who don't recall, it's whether a state violates a floral designers first amendment rights to free exercise and free speech by forcing her this floral designer to take part and create custom floral art celebrating same-sex weddings or by acting based on hostility toward her religious beliefs again acting based on hostility toward her religious beliefs and framing it that way versus 
hostility towards the LGBTQ plus community who simply just wants a floral arrangement so they can celebrate their love. I mean, you know, you think about the GQP and we talk about, you know, all the things that they talk about is if you elect Democrats, the government is going to get involved in your life. It's quite the opposite here. The GQP, the judges they appoint, are obsessed with getting into the lives of people and saying, hey, you, your sexuality is wrong. Here's what the government believes your sexuality should be. Hey, you don't have don't. the rights over your own bodily autonomy. At the end of the day, all these people... All people want and are asking for here is, hey, I want a, I want a, I want a flower design. Hey, I, I'd, I'd like a, a wedding cake that celebrates the love that I have. And GQP judges trying to get on this agenda. No, you can't, you, you can't do that. We, we want to be able yeah. to discriminate against you. I also think there's a lower, much lower standard for the First Amendment expression when you are in interstate commerce, running a floor, a florist shop selling flowers to the public. I don't think you get to be both the creative artist with First Amendment expression of how your roses and peonies and daisies are going to look and then take money from the from the uh, commercial public that walks through your doors. And then when you don't like the looks of the person that comes through the doors, you don't like their gender, you don't like their sexual identity, you don't like same sex marriage, you can say, oh, First Amendment expression. I don't want to make that flower arrangement. I mean, if the Supreme Court a takes certiorari on this and gets four votes. We already know two people are in favor of it. Gorsuch and Thomas have already declared the last time around during the last relist that they would vote in favor of having that case be brought up. Now they're hoping it's obvious that it's Thomas and Gorsuch again. Now they're hoping they can get Amy Coney Barrett and one more to take the case up. And then we're going to have a full blown case about whether florists can refuse to make floral arrangements because they don't like the looks of their customer. Um, I'm hoping to God they don't get the four and they let this die. But you're right. This is like a bad penny that won't go away. It, but but it's it's because despite what they said all summer, all these justices who are on speaking tours and paid speaking events all summer, which is what they do when they come off of the docket. Despite what they said about we're not political, we're not partisan, we don't have agendas, we just say what the law is, we're umpires, balls and strikes, that's bullshit. This is Thomas and Gorsuch wanting to make a constitutional announcement that people who are in same sex, same sex marriages don't have the rights that everybody else does when they go into a stream of commerce, which is very surprising to me. I want to get your opinion. Gorsuch has also ruled that he's OK generally with same sex marriage. So I don't really get where he's coming from. And I'm thinking it's Thomas that's pushing this. What do you think? Oh, you know, I think that there is no cohesive moral way to like link yeah. the logic here. You know, I think that uh, at the end of the day, he, you know, Gorsuch could claim that he, you know, supports to some extent uh, same sex marriages and the LGBTQ plus community generally, but actions speak louder than those words and trying to push an agenda right. where you're investing significant resources of the United States Supreme Court over floral arrangements 
over trying to destroy the most incredible day in the lives of someone who's getting married in a same-sex marriage. And you want to ruin that by empowering floral companies and cake companies to discriminate against them. You think about the arc of history. What just a disgusting and disturbing precedent and another waste of governmental resources to be supporting that heinous conduct. And do you think the Supreme, this is, I want to get your opinion. I, I'm asking this honestly. Do, do, do you think that Supreme courts in the past, in the thirties and forties and fifties, those with justice Frankfurter and Brandeis and all the Titans of our Supreme court that you and I studied in law school, you think they would have taken a floral arrangement case like this in order to make a constitutional ruling? Seriously? Well, I, I don't. Um, but I also don't want to give the institution of the Supreme Court a pass that it was and create a mythology that the Supreme Court has always been this great institution. I think in many ways, the Supreme Court is a anti-democratic institution by nature and gets it wrong a lot of times. The overall arc has been in the direction of equality, of more rights, of treating people with respect and dignity, but they do get it wrong, you know, going oh, back. Oh, for but, sure. But just the fact that they're focused again and again on floral arrangements and cakes um, is so disturbing. But what they're really trying to get at, though, and it's to your point with Gorsuch, is, okay, you want to say that you're for LGBTQ plus community? It's one thing to say it, but by making a ruling like this, on, on such a microcosm issue, but a profoundly important one to people getting married, like floral arrangements. It's from there, it's everything. From there, once you got floral arrangements, they could discriminate against you on essentially everything. And that's the plan. The flower yeah. is the poison pill, wouldn't you say? No, yeah, it's the poison flower. I agree with you. I think that this is a, they're worming their way into undermining all of our civil liberties, all of our personal rights and responsibilities. When you went, when I was in law school, you know, the, the one of the things I, that I took away from Supreme Court rulings was the Supreme Court had set a barricade or a barrier at my bedroom. The government had no right to be in my bedroom. That was a takeaway from law school. And I graduated in 1991. So it wasn't that long ago. And many of these cases, or at least the antecedents for these cases had already been decided or being decided. Now, I don't feel safe anywhere in my home at all against government intrusion. And I don't expect at all this Supreme Court to protect me from the government. I mean, the government is great until it's not. And when it's out of control or others are out of control as state actors, I no longer expect this constitution of the Supreme Court to protect me. How weird is it, Popak? You graduate law school in 1995. I graduate law. No, 1991. 1991. I was trying to make you younger. You graduated. All right. I don't school. need to be younger. Uh, debatable. I, 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 <laughs> 1991, you graduate law school. 2010, I graduate law school. 
your view of the Supreme Court is one of providing more freedoms and liberty than my view. Not only that, someone graduating law school in 2021 views the Supreme Court probably the way someone would have viewed the Supreme Court in 1880, in 1870. And that's not, a, you know, and maybe even further back. I mean, the anachronism of the current Supreme Court the scales of justice, as we like to joke, but we say the scales of justice turn slowly, but often the arc is in the right direction. Here it is actually not turning that slowly. It is turning rapidly in the wrong direction. And we talked about those issues as it relates to human rights and human dignity. But there are other issues, Popak, on this agenda as well. And we see where the Supreme Court is going. And one issue is on the issue of punitive uh, punitive damages. And just to explain to people, we've always heard the terminology punitive damages, but you know, punitive damages are punishment damages. There's compensatory damages, which are intended to, uh, when someone is injured in a lawsuit, to compensate them for the wrong, to make them whole. And compensatory damages could have general emotional distress damages, past, present, and future. Um, it could have consequential damages like loss of income, past loss of income, future loss of income. And then there's another category of damages, punitive damages, which are if the conduct by a defendant, if a conduct by someone that causes injury is egregious, is outrageous, is caused by fraud, um, but reaches this higher standard of the wrong that was committed, this higher standard of reprehensibility of the act, additional damages can be awarded by a jury to deter future wrongful conduct and to specifically punish the defendant or defendants for their wrongs. And there is a, a case currently called Epic Systems Corp versus Tata Consultancy Services. This was in one of the relisted cases. And this is what it says, whether a statute that expressly caps punitive damages at two times compensatory damages satisfies the notice requirement of the due process clause such that a punitive damages award that complies with the statute is constitutionally sound under the due process clause. And so the Supreme Court has set about these broad principles regarding punitive damages in past cases, these are procedural and substantive constitutional limitations on punitive damages. There's been no specific caps that were set, but the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, according to the Supreme Court in past cases, prohibits the imposition of grossly excessive or arbitrary punishments on a tortfeasor. And to ensure that unconstitutional punishment is not imposed in the form of punitive damages, the court set forth three guideposts for courts to consider in reviewing punitive damages award. One, the degree of reprehensibility of the defendant's misconduct. Two, the disparity between the actual or potential harm suffered by the plaintiff and the punitive damages award. And three, 
the difference between the punitive damages awarded by the jury and civil penalties authorized or imposed in comparable cases. There's been no bright line ratio set um, by the Supreme Court, but it has concluded that in practice, few awards exceeding a single digit ratio, meaning like at most a nine to one ratio between punitive and compensatory damages will satisfy due process, but anything above that nine to one ratio of punitive damages to compensatory damages would likely be unconstitutional. And so what happened though, is a lot of states since these rulings have initiated their own caps to lower punitive damages. And so here, what the Supreme Court is looking at is one such cap that reduces punitive damages. And I wanna get your take on this, Popak, because yeah. I think the Supreme Court though, the direction they're going in here, there was this maritime case as well um, that uh, was decided uh, a, a few years back as well. It was a case involving Exxon, I believe. I think it was the Exxon versus Baker case in 2008. Mm -hmm. Um, and there the court basically held it should be a one-to-one -one ratio of compensatory to punitive damages, but they justified that saying that was maritime law. Um, uh, but I do think as we see the Supreme Court protecting corporations, eroding our civil liberties, you're going to see a decrease and significant caps on punitive damages. And I think you'll probably end up seeing a two to one ratio, a three to one ratio at most, and maybe yeah. even like the Exxon case, a one to one ratio. The 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 canary in the coal mine for uh, uh, litigation and protecting people as plaintiffs who have been injured, whether economically, uh, physically or otherwise. The canary in the coal mine is to look to see how a Supreme Court uh, handles punitive damages and the lower the multiple for punitive damages, the less they are interested in protecting uh, liberties and rights. And the plaintiff who was often the David versus a giant corporate Goliath and this Supreme Court has demonstrated that they have no interest in helping the Davids and their only interest is in helping the Goliaths. So uh, you made a very good point earlier about the snapshot of time in which you and I and others went to law school influence how we see the Supreme Court. Although I'm not an idiot, I know what's happened since 1991. And so when I left a little more optimistic, a little more hopeful about the role of the Supreme Court as a co-equal branch of government, you obviously didn't leave your law school with that same optimism because of the set of cases that were being taught at that time and is what the Supreme Court was doing at that time. And I thought that was actually a very fascinating observation and totally and totally right. For those that graduate today, it'll be a completely different body of law for them to experience. A case that the punitive damages came out of and all of this discussion that you and I are talking about in the last few minutes is a case that came out around the time I graduated from law school, which is the um, the four thousand dollar BMW issue, which was BMW versus Gore back in 1995, in which a doctor who owned a BMW who had a problem with his paint job sued BMW and the jury awarded him four thousand bucks to fix the car. 
and $4 million against BMW in punitives. And that was the first case that the Supreme Court, BMW versus Gore, they had an opportunity, at least, you know, in the more modern era to decide punitive damages. And they said, no, that's out of whack. If you got 4,000 and there has to be a link between um, uh, some sort of connective tissue between the amount of the compensatory damages and the amount of punitive damages, understanding that punitive damages do something, as you've outlined, completely different than compensatory. Compensatory is what is what it sounds like. It's to compensate you dollar for dollar to make you whole for the loss or the injury that you've suffered. If it's $4,000 to paint the car, it's for, that's your compensatory damage plus interest, give or take. Punitives is another thing altogether. That is to that is to punish. It's in the word wanton, malicious conduct by usually a company, a corporation, a a giant against you. And and depending upon the dollar amount of their revenue and their assets, a punitive damage award in order to really be punitive and make the giant feel it has to be at a certain level. Otherwise, what are we doing to 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 award punitive damages against? I'll just fill in the blank Fortune 500 company that has billions and billions and billions of assets and revenue and to award a million dollars in punitive damages because that's two times the compensatory or less is is that's like pocket literally pocket change. That's a rounding error in their finances. <clears throat> Pardon me. They'll never feel that at all. And so the purpose of punitive damages in the law has been completely undermined by a Supreme Court that wants to continue to water it down every chance they get to get it to be as close to zero or one multiple as possible. And I think you're right. We're heading down towards a one or two multiple. I will fill in the blank of that Fortune 400 or 500 company, Tesla. We saw in the news that Tesla um, must pay. They were a defendant in a racial harassment lawsuit brought by someone named Owen Diaz, who worked as a contract elevator operator at Tesla's factory in Fremont, California from 2015 to 2016. And he said in his lawsuit that he and others were called the N-word by Tesla employees, that he was told to, quote, go back to Africa, and that employees drew racist and derogatory pictures that were left around the factory on not just an isolated incident, which would be disgusting and despicable itself, but on a consistent basis. The suit said that Diaz was excited to go to work for Tesla, but that instead of a, quote, modern workplace, he found a scene straight from the Jim Crow era. A jury awarded Owen Diaz $6 million in compensatory damages, $6.9 million to be um, exact. This was uh, his compensatory and emotional distress damages. And then they awarded him $130 million in punitive damages. So right there, you're already exceeding the nine to one ratio that we that we see. And, um, and, yeah, we're going to say Popak. And to keep the and just to keep the math going here in 2020, Tesla's gross revenue was thirty one and a half billion dollars. So that what was the total number? One hundred and something million, one hundred and thirty million in punitive. Damage. You're talking about a four percent only of their gross revenue for one year as the punitive. They're barely going to feel that. 
which is which is the opposite of what punitive damages. Punitive damages are supposed to hit them where they live and make them change their corporate culture and pay a price if they don't do so. How do you do that if he was only going to get one times or two times his compensatory damages from the jury? It undermines the function of the jury in our American jurisprudence system. They are supposed to, when they have the facts and the law present, they're supposed to send a message to defendants and corporate America under the punitive damage, their role in the punitive damage process. The judges aren't setting punitive damages. The jury is setting punitive damages. And if you're going to gag them and emasculate them from being able to send that message, what are we doing in a democratic society with a jury process? As the Gen Z would say, story time, story time on TikTok, Popak. So I got a story for you uh, about my law firm. Uh, and that relates to this specifically and talks about these large damage numbers that you hear. You know, a lot of times you hear $300 million verdict, $500 million verdict, you know, $50 million verdict, and you don't really hear the full story after that headline. Very frequently, you'll, you'll see a headline like this, $137 million Tesla must pay. But what you really don't hear is what happens after. Because after a verdict like that, there's post-trial motions. And people don't even know what that is. Crazy. There's post-trial motions where the defense lawyers, the people who represent the Teslas, basically say, yes, judge, the jury just sat here for three weeks, five weeks, three months, and heard all of the evidence. We impaneled the jury. You said this case should go to a jury. We went through all the phases of a case that Ben and Popak taught the legal AFers about from a complaint being filed. It gets past the demurs or the motion to dismiss phases to determine if is there a claim. It gets through the summary judgment, which says, do you have facts to support your claim? It gets in front of the jury. The plaintiffs argue, the defense argues, the jury reaches a decision. The jury rules for the plaintiff. Then there are post-trial motions where they say, where the defense says, the jury got it wrong. The jury misinterpreted the evidence. The jury reached their conclusions based on information that, sh that they should never have received. The jury awarded a number that's astronomical and too high. Judge, we want you to reduce the number. And very frequently, the judges do that. You know, we saw that um, with the story time case that I'm about to tell you, that my firm had a case against a large pharmaceutical company. Uh, the jury verdict before even assessing the punitive damages, interest, all that stuff was about 50 $50 million. Okay. We spent all this time working on this case. It was one of the most great, great day in, in, in everyone's career at the firm. And then the judge didn't just remove the $50 million. The judge reduced the award um, to basically under $1 million. At that time, the cost was above $1 million to even litigate the case. And so the judge took away a $50 million verdict to a yeah. one, made it a $1 million verdict. So he did a judgment notwithstanding the verdict, the JNOV, which the judges are allowed to do after a jury verdict on a motion. And lawyers like you and I who take cases and are probably investing upwards of five or $10 million of time and cost in a case and with the expectation that if we win and we don't win every case, that not only will the plaintiff be rewarded and compensated, 
that we're in a business too, that we're going to be rewarded and compensated. That's just now been reduced unless you take an appeal and are able to reverse that. Yeah. And so that course went on about an eight year appeal process. The case was eventually retried. We were no longer the lawyer for that individual or individuals who were the plaintiff. Um, They ended up winning the next trial, but in that next trial, they were only awarded $250,000 or $300,000 by the next lawyer. And and so you went through this eight-year process and went from what would have been a $200 million to even $500 million verdict with what the punitive should have been assessed to about a $250,000. And this large pharmaceutical company basically got to take away the will of the jury from 10 years it- prior. And I want our listeners, the legal AFers, I'll sum it up with legal AFers. It's a good shorthand. I want them to understand because I know they get frustrated. Like, why isn't Trump in jail already? And it's been seven months and we're not getting results. You know, I gave on my Twitter feed, I gave a a historical uh, timeline point of reference. Watergate, the investigation of Watergate and all the bad things that happened there. And as bad as we think, and Trump was bad. I'm not comparing. I'm not saying he wasn't bad. Nixon was pretty bad himself. Uh, in his own way of undermining the government and his role as a president and got impeached and left office as a result. That was a two year investigation from beginning to end. I ran Contra trading arms for uh, for hostages and supporting the Contra when Congress said that Reagan couldn't. That was a two year investigation. So we're only less than halfway up the mountain here on the Trump investigation. But but the thing I want people to know, because this this might be shocking, because this is not consistent with watching TV shows and movies and Twitter feeds about cases. You and I have been involved with cases that are eight years old, 10 years old, 12. I have a case that I'm involved with. It's 15 years old. That's how long it's been going on. Like children are replacing their parents as lawyers and judges on the case. That's how old these things are. So it's not, you know, this isn't television justice, you know, where, you know, law and order, where, you, you know, the beginning, you see the crime at the end, there's a trial and a conviction. Some of these cases, I mean, the normal case takes two or three years, but some cases that are complicated and the other side is fighting like the Dickens against you can go on for a decade or more. I tell law students, particularly law students who want to become plaintiffs lawyers, I say, look, if you want to become wealthy, become a banker, you know, do something where the <laughs> where the actual goal is to make money. If you if your goal is to become super rich, you shouldn't you shouldn't become a lawyer. That that's not what this process actually really is. I think people who do well in the legal profession do well because they love the law and then the money comes in the profession if you truly love what you're doing. But it could be, and for the reasons that we just discussed, it could become an incredibly frustrating profession, you know, from if the goal is purely, hey, we need to get money, you know, on this case or that case, because it could take substantial time. And then there are situations where you get a verdict against the corporation, but the corporation declares bankruptcy. Uh, when a corporation declares bankruptcy, there's a way for them actually to extinguish the liability of your verdict against them. And you may either get pennies on the dollar or your verdict could get completely wiped out in the first place. So that's just a personal advice I want to share. But people want more updates, Popak. People want more updates. But we've been talking about a lot of cases already. This is yeah. a jam-packed episode of cases. But let's talk about Gates, Greenberg Gate, 
what is going on in Florida right now, Popak Greenberg, um, associated with with Gates or Getz or whatever we call him, just a disgusting human being is probably the better way to refer to him as this involves sex with minors. Greenberg and Getz apparently were out, you know, uh, you know, the, for the GQP and all their craziness talking about pedo rings and pizza parlors or whatever. You know, the real kind of pedo ring seems to be right here in, you know, front and center in the GQP. And so Greenberg's pled guilty. We're waiting on Greenberg's sentencing. I think the update here, and correct me if I'm wrong, Popak, is that that sentencing is being pushed because Greenberg is cooperating against Getz, Gates, whatever, um, and a lot of these transactions um, to uh, to 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 for pro- to to pay the money for prostitutes was done through their Venmo apps, and it's a whole you know and, Apple and, yeah, Pay, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a whole thing. What's going on there, Pope? Yeah, just just one minute of reminder, then we'll get into where we are with Greenberg. So Greenberg, Joel Greenberg was a wingman, for lack of a better term, for Mr. Gates, Congressperson Gates, while he was... Uh, I think there are better words, but I'll give you... <laughs> I, I don't... I mean, I'm, I was going to tie it to something, but I, it's all right. It's okay. You know, in, in surfing, looking for underage women, the two of them would, you know, play off each other. And Greenberg apparently has admitted that he would bring women to Gates um, and they would find ways to pay these women. And usually they were underage, which means they were engaging in prostitution and sexual abuse. The um, Greenberg, of course, flipped because he's, he, it's his only way out of a long jail sentence is to dump on and testify truthfully about Gates. This is Gates's biggest nightmare, besides the fact that there is a paper trail on an electronic trail, as you said, on Venmo, on Zelle and on Apple Pay of paying these people um, to give sexual favors to them. So Greenberg was about to be sentenced. His lawyers in collaboration with the U.S. government and the prosecutors filed a request to the judge that his sentence be put off for another five months because he's continuing to cooperate and proffer evidence to the government against Gates. Government has joined and does not oppose that motion. I believe that the judge will grant that motion and that Mr. Greenberg will continue to sing his song uh, to um, under penalty of perjury if, and other criminal convictions if he lies against Representative Gates and then will ultimately be sentenced once they've sort of mined and drained him of all the information possible that the prosecutors can get out of him. And then they're going to go against Gates and they're going to say, you know, Greenberg flipped and they're going to have a meeting with the with the Gates's lawyers soon one day, maybe six months from now, or eight months from now, and just lay out on a PowerPoint. This is our evidence against you. These are the wiretaps. This is the financial records. We've reconstructed everything in your life with Mr. Greenberg and these women from Genesis, you know, one one to now. And uh, you should plead guilty now and leave office. That'll be a presentation that will happen sooner rather than later, but only after they're done with Greenberg and following the trail of Greenberg through all the other witnesses, including the victims um, to, to gather evidence. You know, so Gates running around town with all of his rallies and all of his BS and going after the Joint Chiefs of Staff about Afghanistan. This is all a charade. He is going to be going down in flames He's going to leave office in disgrace. It's a matter of of uh, when, not if. But we just have to let the wheels of justice continue to roll. 
It's not only a charade, or as Jordy would say, a charade. That's what Jordy thought. That's how you thought you pronounced the charade. But it's a fundraising tactic that's being True. used to fund his legal defense efforts here, so that he could do a complete. You know, he he just wants to delay this thing forever. It's going to be a complete slash and burn litigation. I mean, he's going to try to take everybody down with him at the end of the day. Um, and and Popak, I don't know uh, if you saw also Patriot Takes posted, yeah. uh, uh, made some posts. The Patriot Takes name, I think, was they changed their name that said Gates is a pedo. And Gates didn't see that and thought that uh, Patriot Takes was posting something positive and did like two retweets of Patriot Takes and wrote like fact check true. Uh, so Gates said fact check true because Patriot Takes changed the name and then said like Gates says that Kimberly Guilfoyle is an incredibly intelligent, you know, superstar. And then uh, Gates said fact check true. And then oh. said, fact check true. Patriot Takes name said Gates is a pedo. So it looked like what Gates was actually saying was that he's a that he's a pedo yeah. fact check fact check true. Yeah. So. Gates is also one of the dumbest human beings that that occupies office also that's yeah, he reminds me of that character from veep who i always draw a blank oh. on the name of you know what i'm talking about which one the tall one the tall one but oh. this is an evil version of that and you can't even do a veep anymore jonah I mean, jonah jonah he's he's a worse yeah. more parody disgusting criminal version of a jonah but you really can't even do a veep anymore because what we've seen over the past four years is beyond parody it's sickening and it's tragic do you know that's true? Do you know that's one? I've, I've seen Louis, uh, Julie Louis-Dreyfus interviewed, and she says one of the reasons they ended the show is because truth became stranger than fiction and they could no longer, you know, when they did it, it was Sarah Palin and, you know, God, it seems like a million years ago, uh, Sarah Palin and John McCain, late John McCain. And it was sort of funny and sardonic and, and social criticism. And they ran out of gas because Trump, beat everything they could possibly have th thought about. And they had to they had to stop the show. So he you know, Trump did a lot of bad things. He also killed one of my favorite shows, Beep. <laughs> that, that, amongst <laughs> other more significant, <laughs> horrible things. Right. But absolutely. And Popak, I've been getting a lot of compliments lately in the chat in, through my various work Zooms about the background that I have here. People are saying, Ben, we didn't realize how festive you are. Big shout outs to my girlfriend, Sochi, for helping make me this festive person. I've got the Halloween background here and I'm getting in the spirit of Halloween. And look, Popak and I, we can't tell you what to dress up as for Halloween. But what we can tell you is that you can save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. This podcast is sponsored by Policy Genius. To properly provide for their families. I don't know if you know this, Popak, but most people will need 10 times more life insurance coverage than they will get through their employer or anywhere else. It's a real serious issue and people need to be really attuned to the importance of having the right amount of life insurance and having real good policies. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. Why compare? You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. You could save 
$1,300 or more per year on life insurance by using Policy Genius to compare policies. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad this is a sponsor of ours because life insurance is something you and I don't think about on a regular basis and our followers don't either. But but the licensed experts at Policy Genius will do the work for you. They're not they're not the insurance company, so you can trust them to help you navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. They are a marketplace, not a broker. That kind of service by Policy Genius has earned them thousands of five-star reviews across Trustpilot and Google, and eligible applicants can get covered in as little as a week thanks to an award-winning policy option that swaps the standard medical exam requirement for a simple phone call. That sounds good. I'd rather do that. This exclusive policy was recently rated number one by Forbes Advisor, higher than options from Ladder, Ethos, and Bestow. Getting started is easy. First, head to policygenius.com slash legal AF. In minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price when you're ready to apply. The Policy Genius team will handle the paperwork and scheduling for free. Policy Genius doesn't add on extra fees. So head to policygenius.com slash legal AF to get started right now. That's policygenius.com slash legal AF. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. And we try to get it right and do get it right every weekend, breaking down the legal issues. But I know where I need to just pass the mic to Popak. <laughs> I know where I need to not give the Mycelesian intro. I know where I need Popak to break down an issue of the utmost importance to our legal efforts, to our country, to our democracy, to basic human rights and dignity. And I'm talking about SB8, a number of rapid developments taking place this week, changing developments so much so that another update happened the day before this podcast is being recorded in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. A Popakian prediction came true. My Celestian prediction came true. We told you what the district court was going to do. We were right that the district court was going to block SB8 and they were going to issue a temporary injunction. What an order Judge Pittman wrote. What an order. I mean, one of the most detailed, beautifully written, supportive opinion. And remember, Judge Pittman did not initially grant the emergency relief that was filed. And a lot of people were saying, oh, no, what's going on there? What's going on in Texas you know, we thought that this judge, he's an Obama appointee, someone who support the Constitution. He's not a crazy Trumper. Why would he deny the initial relief? Popak and I told you, we said the judge wants to have a full record. The judge wants to be able to write along. Go back. Go back. Listen to the other legal efforts. We told you exactly what he was going to do. The listen opinion. to all 27 of them. Exactly. The opinion was very similar to what we said we thought the opinion was going to be. We also told you what was going to happen after it, that the Fifth Circuit was going to have a say and likely stop uh, Pittman's order from blocking the underlying SBA. But Popak, break it down first. Yeah, well, let's start with Judge Pitt Pittman, who's become a profile in courage. Judge Pittman, there's really 
two cases that are going on here almost simultaneously, both coming out of Judge Pittman's uh, chambers and courtroom. Judge Pittman is the same judge that in Jackson Health in September uh, had a ruling that was um, an attack on SB8 and it went up to the Fifth Circuit and the Fifth Circuit, as I expect they'll do again, um, basically went against Judge Pittman, stayed his order when the first case was filed, not by the Department of Justice, but by the earlier attacks on SB8. So you've got the Jackson Health case, which is sitting at for waiting for full briefing at the fifth. That went to the Supreme Court on an emergency application and got denied at the emergency application juncture by the Supreme Court, awaiting what they said would be full briefing in December. That case, also Judge Pittman, has now met it met its match with the new case filed by the Department of Justice just three weeks ago. So you've got those two cases, both coming out of Judge Pittman, that are running and are orbiting each other and the U.S. Supreme Court at the same time. Why is this a profile encouraged by Judge Pittman? Because he didn't just write a five or 10 or 30 page decision and then just sit back and hope the Supremes ultimately rule in his favor. He wrote a 113 page analysis, starting with standing as to the federal government having proper Article three standing to bring the case and ending with an injunction against clerks and courts of Texas to, to prevent them from taking any lawsuit filed under this bounty law. And also require the, requiring them to post on their public facing websites his decision so that the whole world knows what the ruling was. He not only wrote 113 pages, but he leaned in on the dissent by Chief Justice Roberts when they when they elected to not take the emergency appeal up. And and the dissent by Justice Sotomayor, which sort of gave him his framework Everything that's in Judge Pittman's decision, and we'll post it on our Twitter feed, 113 pages, are going to be the framework, the blueprint going forward when in this case ultimately makes first a pit stop at the Fifth Circuit, where managing expectations, the Fifth Circuit, which is the most conservative circuit among all the circuits, all 11 circuits, it's the most conservative based in New Orleans, in New Orleans. They're probably going to rule somehow with some contortionist, you know, backflipping that this is somehow constitutional SB8 making its way up to the Supreme Court. But I just want to get everybody ready. The, the Fifth Circuit, as of last night on an emergency application by the state of Texas to get a stay of Judge Pittman's injunction, meaning to stop the enforcement of Judge Pittman's ruling that SB8 is unconstitutional, the Texas state actors and attorney general asked Judge Pittman, you know, we're going to appeal you. Please stay your order. Don't enforce it while we take the appeal. And Judge Pittman looked him in the eye in 113 pages and said, you do not get the right to ask for that because you have been egregious and underhanded in flouting the U.S. Constitution. And I'm not going to allow it to stand one more second. I'm going to bring your law down and I'm not going to issue the stay. If you want to stay, go to the Fifth Circuit. Well, they went to the Fifth Circuit yesterday and a three judge panel, not the entire Fifth Circuit, but three judges of the Fifth Circuit uh, decided that at least temporarily until Tuesday. So we're going to have another update next Saturday till Tuesday. It gave they, they want full briefing by Tuesday 
on the issue of whether there should be a stay of Judge Pittman's order at the Fifth Circuit. Understanding the Fifth Circuit already stayed Judge Pittman's order in the prior Jackson case. So I doubt there's going to be a different result here. Um, Now, you always talk about, Ben, elections have consequences. Judges have consequences, too, unfortunately, and they're linked together. The three judges that got picked by random assignment to handle this case at the uh, fifth. And I just want to get my notes straight on it. One of them was Judge Carl Stewart a Clinton appointee, African-American man um, who who used to be a judge in Shreveport, Louisiana, Uh, Katerina Haynes, who is a former Texas state court judge who was appointed by Bush too. So W put her on the bench and she had been a partner in a well-known large national global law firm. And then I'm sure this is the reason the stay got issued Judge James Ho, H.O., who was a Trump appointee in 2018, not just a Trump appointee. He was the solicitor general of Texas following Ted Cruz. He was a clerk for Clarence Thomas, and he is on public record. And we can look it up that he is a virulent anti-abortion, anti-choice judge, clerk, solicitor general and all of those things. I am sure it was Judge Ho and Judge Haynes that elected to put the stay in place. Now, eventually, the full um, uh, panel of the Fifth Circuit, which is, I don't know, 14 or 15 judges, will ultimately hear the issue of the underlying merits of Judge Pittman's decision to find SB8 unconstitutional. And then that gets framed on a probably a fast track up to the Supremes. But Ben, what were your you you took a look at that opinion by Pittman? What, what struck you by the language that he used about SBA, really starting from the first sentence of the opinion? You know, first off, let's put this in perspective. Oral arguments in the case were basically a week ago. You know, it was like October 1st yeah. was oral arguments, which lasted several hours. And so the fact that you have a 113-page opinion in a course of basically (laughs) five days, four days, that isn't just an opinion on the law. It studies the right to choose. It talks about uh, abortion generally. It talks about the safety of procedures. It delves into the statistics around uh, when abortions are generally sought, why they're generally sought, um, the disparities that laws can affect between low-income individuals and, and others. It goes on to explain uh, the history of Texas um, anti, you know, antecedent restrictions on abortions, these other serious restrictions that date back, um, some that have been declared unconstitutional, but reading just the history of how Texas has tried to take away the right to choose and even the onerous requirements right now that exist in Texas that you have to go back multiple times before being able to get an being able to get an abortion you have to like cons- have to go through consulting sessions like there's so many steps and hurdles and hoops to have to go through right now there has to be parental consent depending on certain ages and so there's so it, it then analyzes abortion regulation generally in Texas 
it goes on to give the SB8 analysis, and it says that you know the cornerstone of SB8 is basically to remove the constitutional right and to do an end run around what the Constitution allows in Roe v. Wade and Casey and all of the cases that we discussed. So, so here was I. The- perfect recitation of a lot of the 113 pages. Here is the very first sentence of Judge Pittman's 113 page decision. A person's right under the Constitution to choose to obtain an abortion prior to fetal viability is well established and fully aware that depriving citizens of this right by direct state action would would be flagrantly unconstitutional The state, in this case, Texas, contrives a strategy and a scheme to do just that. I mean, that is the opening sentence of 113 pages and everything else is just is just analysis to support that sentence. And then you have the Fifth Circuit's order was half of one page um, and says it is order that appellants alternative motion for a temporary administrative stay pending the court's consideration of the emergency motion is granted. That is essentially the full order by the Fifth Circuit yeah. and Paxton, Texas Attorney General, applauded that decision. I mean, it's one sentence. You know, it's not like a, actually a well-reasoned decision. Which lasts until Tuesday, which because Tuesday there's Tuesday. full briefing. And yeah. then Ken Paxton wrote... Uh, Uh, He said, great news tonight. The Fifth Circuit has granted an administrative stay on SB8. Paxton tweeted, I will fight federal overreach at every turn because for the GQ peers like the Paxtons of the world, they only know how to communicate via tweet. Like they have no semblance of what their job actually is. And another, I guess, indicia of being a GQ peer is not just you know, giving these edicts by tweets. It's also being a fucking criminal because let's not forget that Ken Paxton has been under indictment for securities fraud since 2015. And him and his legal team has been using every bit of resources they have and every connection that they have in Texas to try to move the venues to favorable venues and to delay this thing from actually being tried. I think the most recent update on the Ken Paxton criminal cases because he's appealed this every which way and you know most of these judges in texas at the appellate level are republican kind of gq peers who know ken paxton and who many ways owe their jobs to governors and other political leaders who have relationships with ken paxton and so one of the most recent updates in that ken paxton prosecution is that the securities fraud case can be tried in his home county in north texas an appeals court affirmed thursday when it denied the prosecutor's plea to reconsider the decision that was from september 9th 2021 and so that's the and person rip, in Texas, right? There. And, let, and let's and let's and let me bring it home. Let's go through the rogues gallery of Texas attorney generals and solicitor generals in the most recent history. Ted Cruz, Paxton, guy named Mitchell. He's the guy that wrote an amicus brief to the Supreme Court that said the way that women can avoid having an abortion is to close their legs. And I'm paraphrasing. And Judge Ho, 
who's the current judge on the Fifth Circuit, who just ruled for the stay. That's the rogues gallery of attorney generals and solicitor generals in the state of Texas. Popak, you're such a wealth of knowledge because you did not even know that I was going to go there and talk about Ken Paxton. And you just (laughs) knew all of the prior attorney generals of Texas. I mean, that's some real impressive knowledge and research, right? The mighty, the Midas mighty have forced me to become expert in arcane knowledge (laughs) like that. It's it's really impressive stuff right there. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, switching gears, Popak as well. And I think that one of the things that probably our listeners and viewers think is less than impressive, but I think there is uh, some movement taking place here is the ability of the January 6th commission to enforce their subpoenas. There's been all this mixed messaging over the past week about whether or not the January 6th commission was going to enforce subpoenas, whether or not the executive branch and the Biden administration would be um, waiving executive a claim, a, a incorrect claim. So it's not really waiving executive privilege, but whether or not they would be asserting executive privilege over documents from the National Archives that the January 6th commission is seeking relating to Trump and Trump's involvement in the insurrection, which we know previously from DOJ um, internal memoranda that they are not considering the insurrection to be an executive privilege type function. We also hear this week that the Trump administration will be claiming executive privilege, though, and that Donald Trump will be ordering or has told all of the people in his administration that have been subject to January 6th commission subpoenas not to respond and to object to the subpoenas under executive privilege grounds. And I think what our listeners and viewers are just getting fed up with, though, is the pace of this. You know, what's going on? Like, why is it taking so long? And do you see any of the updates that have taken place here, though? Are any of them cause for us to be hopeful and optimistic about what's going on? That's that's my middle name, hopeful and optimistic. I am sort of let me let 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 me start it with something that got little press, but is all interconnected here. The the interim Senate report by the Senate majority by the Senate Judiciary Committee and Dick, Dur- which is Dick Durbin's committee, issued just two days ago, a 400 page report. So we're less than we're about seven months out from Jan 6th. And there's already a 400 page report prepared by the Senate Judiciary Committee. The title of that report, I don't know if you spotted this, Ben, the title of that report like was jaw dropping. And I don't think I've seen it in the annals of of Senate reports. I mean, I've seen it on headlines of novels, titles of novels. This is the headline, quote, subverting justice, colon, how the former president and his allies pressured Department of Justice to overthrow the 2020 election. That is breathtaking that that was written by the Senate Judiciary Committee about a former president that he forget. You know, we have all these cute nicknames and and I know Midas Touch does an excellent job at trending and tweeting and hashtags. But this was the the uh, an attempted coup by the president of the United States, who in the first time in 232 years 
did not peacefully turn over the reins of power to his successor. Plain and simple. This was a coup by any other name. And the Senate report says it's so. And it's based on the testimony of two Department of Justice officials who were high ranking in the in the Trump Department of Justice, starting when Barr resigned in December prior to Jan 6th up to Jan 6th and Jan 7th. And, the, and based on their testimony of what what happened, what happened behind the scenes, behind closed doors with Trump in hour long meetings to try to concoct a way to to execute a coup and to remain in power. They've issued that report that is running parallel to the House committee, which is which is led by or, or vice chaired by uh, Cheney and Benny Thompson, who have not yet issued their report. Because remember, this report by the Senate is based on basically Department of Justice testimony about what went on behind the scenes with 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 uh, Trump pressuring members of the attorney general, uh, Department of Justice office to try to go after U.S. attorneys sitting in Georgia, uh, start uh, fraud, bullshit, fraud investigations in various states and do everything to remain in power and not peacefully turn it over to Joe Biden. The House scope is is broader. It's about all of Jan 6th, how we got to the point of insurrectionists breaching the cradle of democracy for the first time since the Civil War. Even then, they didn't enter the cradle of democracy that way and why it happened, who's responsible for it and how do we make sure, pardon, pardon me, it doesn't happen again. So we have two parallel investigations going on. So the optimism is. The Senate already issued its report. It's a scathing indictment and hopefully a criminal indictment, ultimately, of Donald Trump and everybody around him that pinned their fortunes to him. On the Jan 6 committee side, it's exactly what you and I laid out three or four podcast episodes ago. This Congress, while we have the majority, and I'll say it again, before the midterms, while we have the majority, this congressional select committee is going to make criminal referrals to the Department of Justice for for prosecution and arrest of those people like Steve Bannon, like Meadows and others who have said they're not going to testify or cooperate with the Gen 6 committee. They are not. We used to talk about a couple of episodes ago. Oh, the historical but little used powers of Congress for contempt. Forget all that. This Congressional committee is going to make criminal referrals. People are going to be arrested. There's going to be court proceedings related to it that you and I are going to be talking about when others try to throw up executive privilege. I mean, look at Bannon. Bannon is throwing up executive privilege. He wasn't even in the White House. He'd already been removed from his position and he was citizen Bannon. There is no executive privilege if Trump talked to Bannon while he was outside the White House. There's not even an argument for that. And as Jamie Raskin, who's the constitutional scholar on the committee, said eloquently yesterday or the day before, there is no coup exception to the executive to the executive privilege. You can't say, oh, I was was planning a coup and I'm going to cover all that by executive privilege. No, that is not executive privilege. That is supposed to be for normal, non-treasonous presidents to have deliberations with their advisors and and consultation so they can make policy behind closed doors and not have to worry about it leaking out. Not for crazy, treasonous, coup-leading 
presidents. That's why Biden dropped the executive privilege and the courts are now going to have to struggle with this issue as to the limits of executive privilege when that person in office is no longer entitled to it and has forfeited it. I think our listeners and viewers, though, have the right to be frustrated, though, on the latter part of what you say, Popak, which is there are all these great steps that are being taken. The Senate issued a scathing report. Oh, those words are so scathing in the introductory. It's scathing. And they calling out a former president for a cue. Who, so what, though? Like, so what? If there's no teeth behind it, so what? Biden, Biden saying there's no executive privilege. So what if you're not seeing Steve Bannon, the Ken Baxton's of the world, and these people perp walked in cuffs but, but going to will. prison? But you will. And this is where you and I, although we're almost always on the same page on these things, I, I hate to say it, but there is no fast track like a Disney to justice when it comes to these weighty issues of presidential politics. Nixon didn't go off in handcuffs. He should have didn't go off in handcuffs. Those involved with Iran-Contra didn't go off in handcuffs within the first seven or eight months. You have to have as predicates the events that you and I are talking about. You have to have a scathing Senate report. You have to have a House committee that does an investigation. You have to have the referrals to the Department of Justice. You have to have the lawsuits and ultimately the Supreme Court making rulings before Four people get the justice that you and I think they deserve. It's I don't and, I, and I'm going to be clear here. I don't want to live in a society or an American democracy where things like this happen in the streets, like the Taliban in Afghanistan, where people are hanging from cranes. We are a deliberative process. It may go slower than our our followers and listeners and legal efforts care. But I want to live in a deliberative society, even if it takes longer than any of us would like to say, I'm all about picking up pitchforks and torches, although I'm not like Bannon on his podcast telling people there should be armed insurrection again, which I think is another count, another count for his indictment. But I, I am obviously more patient in the process because there has to be due process in the way we do things. We can't lower ourselves to the barbarians that we just replaced. The barbarians, Popak, are already at the gates. The Taliban with the pitchfork and the torches, we saw that on January 6th. And the question ultimately is, will we still have a democracy? Can the scathing reports, the footnotes in page 37, the deliberative process that you just discussed, can that process stand up to the Taliban pitchforks, shamans, people who are breaking into the Capitol building. And that is ultimately the question that we leave our listeners and our viewers with. I think you and I both share a sense of optimism. We also share a realism. And our realism, though, is to believe in the greatness of our country and our democracy that we need to fight each and every day for our democracy, and we can't take it for granted. I get incredibly frustrated when 
we have these great reports and these great things and ultimately it goes to the fifth circuit and the fifth circuit has Trump appointees who don't give a shit about our democracy and they wear the drapings of article three, they wear the drapings of our democracy, but in reality, it is no different than the drapings of the Taliban. It is the drapings of authoritarianism that frightens me, but I am buoyed by the fact that there's, there's something to fight for. I think all of the things that you're talking about are great. But if we don't win the election in 2022, if we don't keep the White House in 2024, if we allow GQP judges to take over our system, democracy as we know it will be gone for the foreseeable future. The next election will be the most important election of our lifetimes until we eradicate this GQPism. And I hope, I hope that you and I are just doing our small part each, and I know we are, each and every weekend with this show and through the other work that we're doing. And I want everybody listening, watching, wherever you get this podcast, however you enjoy this podcast, to know that you have the power and just being on the sidelines is not an option. Popak, concluding thoughts. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it on an optimistic note. As the great philosopher Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high and I'm going to I'm going to ask our legal AFers and others to do both things that we've talked about on this podcast to use this information and this analysis and the way we're presenting it to arm yourself in a mental way to debate the issues with your friends and family and to understand clearly what's going on, but to get involved. And now we're moving over to the, the, the brothers podcast get involved with politics and understand that those elections have consequences. And that's all that Ben and I have been talking about for 27 episodes are the consequences of elections in the hands of the, judici the, the judiciary that's selected through those elections. Popak, you are a philosopher and scholar. Thank you for joining <laughs> me on the Midas Touch Legal AF podcast every weekend. If it is Saturday, it is Legal AF Live. If it's Sunday, it is Legal AF. That was Michael Popak. I am Ben Micellis. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. <laughs>